Thank you for choosing to listen to the Mummy on a Break podcast. I am Maria Newman, otherwise known as Mummy on a Break. My journey to becoming Mummy on a Break started back in 2016. That's the year I took voluntary redundancy whilst on maternity leave with my second baby and without really having a plan. The only thing I knew at that moment was that I needed to change my job and if I didn't seize the day and take my chance, I'd be in the same job doing the same thing up until I retired. That thought really scared me. So long story short, I embarked on my journey of being mummy on a break, which started with me actually deciding to start my own business. And by following a very windy road led me to create the life I really wanted. I now help women who are like the old me. I help busy working mums who are fed up of the routine, the daily routine, and want to take back control and create the life they really want in their work, their relationships, their wellness, their money, and the fun stuff. If you want to find out more about how I can help you, then check out my website, mummyonabreak.co.uk and click work with me. However, for now, sit back, relax and enjoy this podcast episode. Welcome to the Mummy on a Break podcast. My name is Maria Newman and I am Mummy on a Break. You can find out more about me, what I do and Mummy on a Break on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The podcast series is all about taking care of yourself inside and out and I will be interviewing six amazing women who are experts in their field and who will be sharing their secrets with us on how we can look at good on the inside and out. My guest today is Laura Clark. Welcome Laura. Thank you. And Laura's background is she is a registered dietitian and nutritional consultant. She supports individuals, employees, and food brands with evidence-based tailored expertise. Her approach is realistic and practical, cutting through the often confusing world of nutrition with a holistic approach that is grounded in science. Her mission is to empower women to break free from dieting, lose the guilt, and rebuild their relationship with food. So today's podcast episode is about diet and our relationship with food. Thanks for joining us today, Laura. Um, So before we jump into it, tell Mm -hmm. us a bit about yourself, your story and how you got Mm -hmm. to where you are today. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Maria. So I decided to become a dietitian uh, when I was 16. I decided at that age that I had a love of science. I quite liked food and I really liked people. And so nutrition and dietetics felt like the perfect fit for me because I got to combine all of those three things. My career has seen me work in the NHS for the vast majority of it. So I have now left my NHS hat behind and have been completely freelanced in the last five years, but did do 15 years um, working in the NHS which was amazing actually because I got to work with so many different people from all sorts of different backgrounds with lots of different challenges and medical conditions 
I think I worked out once that made me feel very old, but I think I worked out that I'd seen in my NHS career probably about 12,000 patients. And so with, it's a big number. (laughs) Uh, And so with that has come, I suppose, hopefully uh, feeling a little bit wiser and a lot of clinical experience, which I'm then able to bring into um, my private practice and the companies and and, um, people that I work with now um, in my freelance life. I have a couple of children and I think really that combination of wanting to deliver my own version of what I felt the messages needed to be around nutrition and health and juggling motherhood um, is really what led me to become completely freelance and to leave the NHS behind me. It is a fantastic institution, but it is not without its challenges and um, lack of resource. And I feel now that I'm able to truly be the kind of dietitian that I want to be moving forward. Wow. <laughs> I, I could go on but we'll stop there for now <laughs> so although through your work you help lots of different people um you specialize in helping yo-yo dieters yeah and um what i find interesting about diet is that whenever you mention the word to people they automatically think it's a short-term fix to a problem you know whether that's wanting to lose weight or for health reasons However, isn't it more a lifestyle change that people need to adopt to become a habit for it to be truly successful? Mm. I suppose to give a bit of background on that, within the NHS, I was able to work in every single tier of support. So I was able to support GPs and practice nurses to deliver interventions for people who were visiting their GP for a seven minute appointment and those opportune occasions to be talking about weight I was able to set up services at a more specialist level which involve working alongside um, GPs and clinical psychologists and physiotherapists and other dietitians to offer that sort of multidisciplinary approach and then I worked at the top of the tier so with people who had severe obesity for which they required weight loss surgery to take place to um, to support them so it enabled me to get a complete view if you like of weight management across the board and I think one of the challenges that I was most struck by is that the language and the way in which we describe dieting and losing weight and managing our weight has become a very one-sided conversation about it all being the focus on what you weigh and what you should weigh with the very classic kind of, you know, BMI charts where your GP will rather unhelpfully um, point to where you are on the scale or even worse, um, make you realise that you're not even on the chart at all. Um, Taking very arbitrary measurements in clinic with scales that probably aren't really that accurate. And actually what we need to realise and hopefully what we'll chat a bit about today is the fact that this really shouldn't be a conversation about weight. This should be a conversation about health. And obviously lifestyle change comes into that. But one of the biggest challenges, again, that we face as human beings is that we don't have a very rational relationship with food. And yet we think we do. So we apply all of this sort of rational thought and behavior around following a diet plan Um, but then it doesn't really work very well because there is so much uh, at play 
that even at a, a very sort of conscious level, uh, we don't even appreciate or understand. So, yeah, <laughs> it's complicated, <laughs> I think, is the, probably the biggest sort of take home from that. Okay, okay um, so lifestyle is just an element of what you're saying, which is you've, you've said it's this, the health that we should be yeah. focusing on. And yeah. so what, so what goes into health? What, what are the, the elements that we should be looking at? If there's, you know, there's a bit about um, food, there's a bit about our lifestyle, what, what yeah. else? Yeah. So I think we think when we think about lifestyle change, we like the idea, don't we, that we can perhaps put more nourishing foods in our body, or we can perhaps do a little bit more physical activity. We can perhaps spend less time um, in front of a screen. You know, we can recognize that there are, there are numerous lifestyle changes that are of benefit to our physical and mental health. And I'm, we're not denying that. But I think the challenge is that when we say that we're, 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 we're making lifestyle changes, what we actually mean is that we're following a particular diet plan of some description. And the challenge with that is that if that's something that we've done multiple times before, we start to have a very different narrative going on in our heads around why that didn't work, what it was about it that didn't suit us. Um, we get lots of mixed messages about nutrition. We get food groups within the media, down the pub, in the hairdressers, polarized. Uh, we shouldn't do this. We should do that. We shouldn't eat this. We should eat that. And I think the challenge with nutrition science is that, yes, it feeds into so many other aspects of well-being, as you touched on there, but it also, by definition, is quite a grey area of science. We don't have black and white answers to things. And yet again, our, our brain loves a black and white answer, doesn't it? It loves to know categorically, this is what we should be doing. Yeah. And science, nutrition science, looks like it changes its mind a lot of the time. But actually, it's because new evidence comes to light. We take that new evidence and we should then compare it and contrast it to all the other, the, the other evidence we've got on that particular subject, which, of course, the newspaper headlines are not very good at doing. No. So, <laughs> so, um, so studies, nutrition studies are done on human beings. We are notoriously very difficult people to study because we don't do what we say we're going to do. Um, laboratory studies are by far the most accurate because if you trap someone in a room and you control absolutely everything about their 24 hour period, you start to get some more accurate results. But in free living subjects, we're terrible at remembering what we did uh, and we're terrible at doing as we're told. Um, so it is a very, very difficult science um, from which to draw conclusions from. But if you know how to interpret data and you know how to analyze and understand the data, then you can get something meaningful from it. But that doesn't necessarily then translate for people in the morning, wake up, what am I going to eat today? So we have really polarized views around food. We have lots of thoughts and beliefs around food that have come from how we were brought up, what our parents thought about food, dieting, health, whatever. Uh, then we have all of our genetics in the mix. Then we have our environment uh, and, and we have another whole layer even within genetics. So how the food that we eat then influences how our genetics are expressed. So it's very, very complicated. And yet we don't really appreciate any of that because our brain is just looking for it to be kind of simple lifestyle change. Yeah. But inevitably it isn't that simple. Um, and that's when we start to fall into, fall into holes. But, you know, let's be clear for some people, 
they do have a bit of a light bulb moment and they do say, do you know what? I think I need to eat a few more fruit and veg and I think I probably need to walk a bit more. And they do, and they feel the benefit for it. So I'm not denying that in some people, it's very, very straightforward. Mm. But for the vast majority of people, particularly in a society that basically shames fat people, uh, we have another whole conversation that's going on behind the scenes. And that's the conversation that I want to, to have more of. So when with your clients or, or just in the work that you've done in general, typically, yeah. what are the blockers that, um, or what are the triggers that mean an individual is, becomes a yo-yo dieter, if that makes yeah. sense? Yeah. So dieting initially involves putting oneself into a, a calorie deficit. And it doesn't matter what diet you follow. They all have a slightly different um, slant, don't they? There's a slightly different way in which they are um, promoting the fact that they work. But, but behind the scenes, uh, they are creating a calorie deficit. And in all of the research that's been done, looking at all of the different diets, you know, we're all looking for the what's the one, what's the one that's d- 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 you know, destined to work the best. We can see that really it's down to consistency of behavior. So some people are going to find it much easier to follow a 5-2 diet or a keto diet or a Weight Watchers plan than other people. Different things fit different people. So that's it as it it stands. You can walk out today and you can put yourself on, on one of these diet plans. And we've got evidence, obviously, that when you put the body into a calorie deficit, uh, you lose weight. The problem is that we've got very little scientific research, really, that you can maintain significant amounts of weight lost. And what we do see is that between two to five years, a lot of people, and when I say a lot, I'm talking about 95% of people will regain most of that weight back. So is that just fundamentally because those people suddenly ran out of willpower or is there something else going on? And what we can actually see when we, when, we, when we open our eyes is that there is obviously something else going on here that is enabling that body to recover. Now, when we regain weight after we've dieted strictly, we don't see that as recovery. We see that as a pain in the ass, quite frankly, don't we? If you yeah. have put a huge amount of effort in, <laughs> lost a huge amount of weight, got down to a certain size, and then to slowly watch that weight creep back on, it's so demoralizing. So hang on, let me just get that point again. So yeah. is the body just getting itself back to where it was because the body thinks, or the brain is telling the body that that's my, that's my default, that's where I should be? Is that yeah, what you're what saying? We call a, it's what we call a set point. So we have a genetically predetermined weight. And... For, for, for a lot of people, you will sit within, within, a, within a certain relatively small spectrum at your genetically predetermined weight. And it is, it is as predictable as your shoe size. Oh my but, we, but we don't live in a country where we're all told that if you have size seven feet, that's not acceptable. So we don't have a shoe reduction industry or a, or a foot reduction industry, but we do have a diet industry because yeah. we are taught from a young age. If you read the Mr. Men books, starts there, right? We are taught that if you are a certain body shape, you are making poor food choices and you're lazy. That's what we're taught, which is fundamentally incorrect, but that's what we're taught. And so that stays with us through, through, throughout, uh, you know, as we grow. So if people 
have a different body shape that doesn't quite fit that that sort of thin ideal they probably start to start to do something about it and to diet and once you start to diet you start to muck up your internal regulatory processes and then there's a whole load of stuff that happens um really lots of technical scientific terms here but there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that the body does metabolically yeah uh, to control or to manipulate your hunger and fullness um it's the it's the classic sort of feast famine which we see so if the body has been put through a period of, of starvation it needs to prevent it needs to put measures in place so that that doesn't happen again because it sees that as a dangerous thing so it will put numerous adaptations in place so that when the next famine comes it's prepared mm. So it will be able to store fat more easily. Um, it will slow down metabolic rate. Uh, it will do whatever it can to conserve energy. Um, and funnily enough, the signals that we have that tell us we're hungry is a metabolic process in itself. So it is exhausting to keep giving the body signals that you're hungry if you're not responding to those signals so those signals then start to get switched off so stuff that was very very basic if you think about babies you know what do they do when they're hungry they cry yeah. um so it's a very very basic thing but it's something that can be very very easily manipulated um and that's what dieting uh does but we're still presented when we've regained that weight we're presented with a solution what's the solution another diet yeah so round and round and round we go so so we we've touched on it's not necessarily a willpower thing um yeah. and there is no evidence that says why people can't permanently keep weight off but so the, th the thing i sort of want to touch on now is uh, your the point is based on what you were saying where the body already knows really mm -hmm. how it needs to regulate itself. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. we're obviously coming in with this diet mm -hmm. and ignoring the body, mm -hmm. ignoring what our brain is telling us and what the body's telling us. Mm -hmm. And so then the body is combating that and the brain is combating mm -hmm. that by saying, well, all right, then I need to put in these other um, actions to make sure that you're safe and you stay alive. So what, what can we do then? Is it a case of people need to be, rather than, you know, change the way they eat and their diet, do mm. they first of all need to go through, I don't know, a course that helps to educate them around the whys mm. and what needs to happen before they then enter into a, right, now we'll change your um, nutrition plan because you know how it works and how the body responds so that when you then go into this dieting, the um, probability of success is higher. Mm. Okay, so a couple of things to touch on there. The willpower thing is really interesting. So the research that looks into people who perhaps supposedly have lots of self-control and lots of willpower have actually been shown to not be using it very much. So the irony is that people who think that they have lots of self-control or appear on the outside to have everything very together, when you actually examine uh, um, in the brain how much of that, that willpower resource they're using, they're actually not using very much of it. 
So there's something about the way that they are setting up their environments so that habits that we know are very healthful are easier to do. So rather than it requiring lots of conscious thought, which is really draining for the brain. And remember the brain loves the default. The brain loves, the brain is lazy. Okay. Uh, we are, we are not lazy fundamentally, but the brain is, so it, it loves the default. So anything that doesn't require um, conscious thought becomes into the subconscious. And so people who have good habits, the brain starts to make these associations. So to give you an, an example of that. So if you look at people who are just, they just, they just run, they're always running. They're always out for a run. Um, they've begin, they've begun to build up associations that as soon as they see their trainers or as soon as they, you know, see the wood in front of them, it makes them want to go for a run because they've made that association in their heads. Whereas initially when we're putting a new habit in place, it can feel really clunky. We've got to consciously tell ourselves, okay, go and put your trainers on. Okay. Psych yourself up. Okay. Walk to the woods. Okay. Now start running. And it's all very, very draining. But the more you repeat something, the more automatic it becomes, and then it goes into your subconscious. And so people that have these healthy habits are not having to consciously drag themselves out of bed to go for an early morning run. It's just becoming so automatic that they get out of bed, they put their running gear on, they put their trainers on and they go out the house and they haven't really had to think a huge amount about it. So that's the good news that when we put habits in place, they do become easier the more we repeat them. And if we can set ourselves up to make that as easy as possible, then that's going to be helpful. So clearly, if we have the habit of going past the same shop on a Friday and always buying three extra large pizzas and a, you know, a bag of Maltesers, then we're going to find it very difficult to change that habit because that's what we always do. Whereas if we vary our route home, we start to break that connection and we start to build a different habit. So again, this is like, is this a conversation about health or is this a conversation about dieting? Because fundamentally, if somebody is eating above their calorie requirement consistently, like, you know, a lot of us do at some point in our life, we over, you know, we are not, we know we're not eating in tune with our body. Um, if we then bring that back in line, it is possible to lose that weight and return to our set point. But if somebody is is not eating to their set point and is fundamentally under fueling themselves and driving their weight down, then ultimately their set point is just going to keep going up and up and up. So it depends to answer your question. It depends on the, the history of that person. If that person has not had a very healthy diet is constantly eating above their set point weight, then they, and they have a bit of an epiphany and go, do you know what? I want to be healthier then they can lose that weight and maintain it. But a lot of people are not um, at that point. They are already at, a, at their set point weight, but they're deciding that that's not where they want to be. So they're driving themselves to go below their set point weight, but dieting itself, because of all of the adaptations that it puts in place, it then makes your set point weight higher, which is why each time you go on a diet and you lose weight, you end up, being bigger than you were before you started the previous diet. So it depends on that person's history. Yes, of course, there are people that do maintain weight that they lose for 20 odd years or more. Um, but if, but if, 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 you've, if, you've not, if you're not that person and it's repetitive dieting, then that's where actually 
that you are very unlikely to get to the target that you want to be at. And that's where then this has to become a conversation about your mental health, your emotional well-being, and your physical health. And it's about nourishing your body and putting healthy food in your body and honoring your hunger rather than this being a conversation about deprivation and dieting and, you know, only allowed X number of points or whatever it is in a day. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. It's, it's like with most things, it has to be um, personal to yes. the individual because we are all different. No yeah. two human beings are the same. Yeah. Um, and, and everybody's had a different history, whether, you know, yeah. whether it's childhood, your parents, whatever it is. Yeah. So yeah, I suppose people who are looking for um, a fix, which yeah. is something that's off the shelf, probably aren't going to get what they need and no. will start them potentially on that spiral of becoming yeah. a yo-yo dieter. But I think that, yeah, you're right. It, it, they, but it's not their fault. And I think this no. is the thing that really sticks in my throat. It's that they're, they're, they're told yeah. one plus one equals two. But, but we know that you can feed two people exactly the same number of calories and they will gain different amounts of weight. So very quickly, it can start to screw with your head. You know, you go to a, slim, a slimming club with a friend, you know, in the same week, you can do exactly the same and your friend loses half a stone and you lose a pound, you know, and all of a sudden you're like, well, hang on a minute, that's not fair. And, but, but it's because you've been led to believe that it's really, really simple. Calories in, calories out, Mm-mm-mm, you know. <laughs> yeah. And, and on a surface level, that's not, that's not incorrect, but it's, but it, but it's, but it's so, um, simplified that it almost becomes incorrect because there is so much else that's going on behind the scenes that you don't have control over um you know it's it's, an iceberg in that sense that you know yeah what you see they're telling you everything you can see but they're but there's so much beneath the the surface that you don't and every iceberg i can't believe i've got this analogy every iceberg is different yeah Absolutely. And if you think about, you know, even all these automated processes that we don't put any energy into, like breathing, you know, if I said to you now, okay, Maria, I want you to hold your breath. You can do that, right? But, but at some point, you're going to have to take a breath. And when you do, you won't go, you'll go, <gasps> and it'll be a big intake of breath. And so similarly with, with dieting and with, you know, you can switch off hunger, you can convince yourself that you don't need any more food that day. Uh, you can keep yourself in a, you can underfuel yourself for months and months and months on end. But at some point, you're going to take that big breath. At some point, your body is going to say enough's enough. Um, but we don't interpret that as, as a physical thing. We interpret that as a a failure of willpower mm. thing. Um, okay. So, so looking to be a bit positive, what, <laughs> <Yeah>. can, <laughs> what, can, what can people do yeah. to, to start making changes that um, are only baby steps, but are in the right direction? Yeah. So number one, have a chat with yourself and say, Am I actually listening to my body? Is my body in, in the driving seat here? Or is somebody else making all the decisions about what I eat and drink and how I spend my time? So who's in control here? 
Um, and that's the challenge, obviously, with the diet industry is that in a way, the more you're hooked onto them, the more money you're going to spend being cynical. But I'm not allowed to be cynical. Let's be positive. So, um, <laughs> so, so to have a chat with yourself and just ask yourself that question, who, who is in the driving seat here? Number two, when you put yourself in the driving seat, when you realize that you can make the decisions, that you can build trust again in what your body is telling you, and you can relearn where that perfect sweet spot is between digestive comfort, physical comfort, emotional health, um, and, and, and a body that you can comfortably move in. It is very empowering and very uplifting to, to rid yourself of a number of these food rules. Um, and number three, look around you at what health means to you. What does it mean to be healthy? And I mean that both in mind and body, because the good news is that there's lots of ways in which you can be healthy. There's lots of positive things that you can do for your body that you can make the decision about that somebody else doesn't have the monopoly over. Um, and so if you can even just take that step back and just, just, just think about those things, it, it can path the way for a more helpful relationship. And when you work in that way, we're not saying that this is giving up on what your weight is. We're not saying that you just have to accept to be the weight, to be whatever weight, but, but, but what it does mean is that when you take weight as the sole focus of every single habit that you have, if you take weight off the table as the focus, it literally frees up space for this to become a slightly different conversation with a slightly different meaning and one that's more long lasting rather than everything I'm, judge I'm judging myself, every habit I'm going to judge on what that number says on that scale on Friday and woe betide if it's gone up or yeah. woe betide, you know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's a really draining way to, to live. Um, and if you can take weight focus away, then actually you can path the way for a very, um, long, happy, healthy life, whatever your, whatever your weight. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. It's opened up my eyes to um, relationships with food and, and it's confirmed to me that like with most things in life, it's not necessarily about the doing, but it's the, it's the power of the brain as well and what's going on mm -hmm. in your brain as mm -hmm. opposed to what outwardly you might be doing. So mm -hmm. um, thank you. Finally, how can people find out more about you and if they want to work with you? Well, you did mention uh, about, oh, it's almost as if somebody needs to have um, a course or something <laughs> to relearn it. So I haven't quite got a course, but we are starting uh, with um, a free masterclass, which is called Hang Ups, Hangovers and Hormones. I'm very proud of this title. I came up with it in the middle of the night um, in a, it, with some inspiration, which is sort of slightly left field, which I won't go into here. Um, but, but, you know, we all have hang-ups, as we've talked about. Um, a fair few of us have a few hangovers as well. And we all have hormones. And I just want to have a really honest conversation in the similar vein to what we've said today, but with more detail, more neuroscience, more physiology, 
um, you know, more behind the scenes, lifting the lid essentially on dieting and health and really just um, start to give people confidence and in that informed choice around what they do with their own body. So I'd love people to sign up for that completely free, 2nd of October, 1pm. And how do they, where do they need to go to sign up? Well, that's on Eventbrite, but you can access that through my Instagram uh, links bio or through my website, which is um, LEC Nutrition. Um, but if people follow me uh, on social, it's Laura Clark Nutrition and they can access the details and book through my various links. Um, and the second thing to say is that people can also book a call with me. So if they are interested in working with me on a one-to-one basis, they can book a call again through my Instagram page or my website. And you can also download my free ebook, which is gaining clarity on carbs. Um, Cause we could have had a whole podcast talking about carbohydrates. Um, <laughs> instead of that, you can just read my ebook, um, which I think I probably spent longer on than I did my university dissertation. So um, those are three ways in which people can connect with me. So book a call, download my book, uh, ebook, or um, come along to the masterclass. Um, and yeah, I'd love to have you there. And it's great to get feedback and, and yeah, thoughts from everybody on what they think about them and food and their world, etc. Brilliant. <laughs> well, um, thanks again, Laura, for um, having a chat with me and thanks everyone for listening and watching i hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as i did if you're interested in finding out how you can work with me and how i can help you then head over to my website www.mummyonabreak.co.uk and click on work with me Take care.